0: Good morning, everybody. How are you this morning? Wow, good. Two of you are doing all right. I love hearing that. That means my message is right on point for this morning. I'm gonna be speaking on walking in the wilderness. Uh, we just finished up our series on uh, finances and speaking the word, and here's the thing. I uh, Pastor Russ was like, hey, Dan, do you want to, do you want to speak just kind of a one-off, whatever you want? And I said, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then a few days later, he comes in, and he goes, hey, maybe you, can, maybe you can talk on this. I said, sure, yeah, that, I can do that, I can do that. Then a few days later, he comes in, and he's like, hey, actually, you know, make sure you, you, you do this. And I was like, yeah, I got it, I'm on it, I'm, I'm totally going to do it. And so I, I got this message together, uh, I had it in my back pocket. It was one that I, uh, that I had preached before, and I was actually sharing it with a coworker, with uh, Logan Bush, actually, and she was like, oh, man, could you, sh- could you share that? And I was like, okay, yeah, I can totally do that. And uh, so, so I pulled it out, and last night, I kid you not, guys, last night, I'm going through the sermon, and I felt like the Lord just said, nope, that's not it. <laughs> And I just thought, the night before, really, Lord, you couldn't tell me like three days ago when I started really thinking about this and putting my stuff together, you're going to tell me now that you want me to speak on something else. And here's what's great about the Lord. He's like, no, that's not it. I'm like, oh, well, great. I, if I can say yes to Pastor Russ, if I can say yes to Logan Bush, to, certainly I can say yes to the Lord. What do you want me to speak on? And you know what he did? It was so awesome. Nothing. He said nothing. He didn't say anything to me. I thought, Lord, it's just like you. <laughs> it's just like you. And, uh, but as I, as I just, my life and, and the different messages I feel like the Lord has laid on my heart, one did come to the surface, finally. And I want to share that with you. It's entitled, Walking in the Wilderness. When I grew up, uh, I've shared this with you guys before, my father was in the military, so I I moved every three years. Uh, And then when I got into high school, gracious, gracious God, he allowed me to do all four years of high school in a single place. So second to fourth grade, I was actually in Germany. And then after we moved back from Germany, uh, we moved straight to Washington State. And if you don't know anything about Washington State, it is lush. It's green. It's The trees are, are. I didn't know this at the time, but they're huge. They're, they're ginormous. I remember going in fifth grade, we went to this camp, and we decided we we're going to get the counselors and the kids, and we're all going to stand shoulder to shoulder around this tree. And there was 32 of us around a single tree. So the trees are large. I mean, they're fairly big. And uh, then... And Germany is the same climate as, as the Northwest. It's very wet. And so the trees there, it's very lush. It's very big. And then when I went through college and I started pastoring, I went back to Washington and eventually made my way to Colorado Springs, Colorado. And when I was driving there, I was excited because it's the Rocky Mountains, right? And I'm driving in and I'm looking at all the trees on the mountains And this was my thought. Have have you ever seen those train sets, like the model train sets? And not just the train itself, but people really get into it. I mean, they're like real fanatical about it. And they start having like little towns and mountains and lakes and figures. Well, in that, typically you'll see these little model trees everywhere. And when I saw the trees in Colorado... That's all I could think. I was thinking to myself, what's wrong with all the trees? They're like all midget trees. They're like super tiny. They're only like 20 feet tall. I mean, they're nothing. They're nothing. And I realized that I had moved from Seattle, which is known as the Emerald City. And it's known as the Emerald City because of how lush it is, because of how green it is. But when I moved to Colorado, I realized I moved to a desert, El Paso Desert, running from Mexico all the way up through Colorado. It is arid. It's dry. The normal color is brown. If I didn't water my grass twice a day, every day, it was brown. Guys, it was a desert. And it's very different living in a desert than when you're living in a place of abundance. And there are many different kinds of deserts. There are many different kinds of wildernesses. There is, of course, the physical Wilderness, climate, and the wilderness is hard. It's the nature of wilderness and deserts to be a hard place to be. When I lived in Colorado, my friends and I would go every summer on a 23-mile backpacking trip in the wilderness. And we loved it and hated it. And it was for the same reason, because it was so hard. It was difficult. When you look in Scripture, you'll see in the Old Testament, the people of God are in slavery in Egypt. And when they're moved out of slavery, they're not moved immediately into the promised land, a land of abundance. They were moved to where? They were moved into the wilderness. And the wilderness is a place of difficulty. Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar, and this is what he says. He says this. It's the next slide. And I'm going to read it to you from my notes. There it is. Wilderness is a place in biblical rhetoric where there are no viable life support systems. There's nothing to live on. So when I was looking into the Greek, because think about this. Jesus, it says, think about when Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan, when he comes up. Does anybody know what happens next in the story? He's a, the Holy Spirit comes down upon him, and then it says, immediately, it takes him into where? The wilderness. And for 40 days and for 40 nights, he doesn't drink and he doesn't eat. That's hard. It's hard to be in the wilderness with food, let alone without food. He does not eat any food. And at the end of that time, what does it say? It says the enemy came to tempt him. When you're in the wilderness, there is severe lack. And when we live in lack, there is temptation. He was hungry and the enemy said, change these stones to bread. You're hungry. You're the son of God. You can do this. What does that tell us? The Greek word for wilderness is it's aramos, it's and it means this: it means a place of lack. It's uncultivated and wild. It's a place that didn't have a harvest season. How many of you have lived your lives, and there have been times that could be described as a place and a moment where there was no harvest? There's not even a harvest on the horizon. It means a place of hunger, a place of homelessness. It speaks of being dispossessed, and therefore it's a lonely place. Have you ever been lonely, isolated, surrounded by people, yet all alone in your problems? A place that is dry and arid, a place where there's no water, a place of emptiness and a place where life is difficult. The wilderness. When I moved to Colorado, I remember one morning waking up and I was preparing a sermon for the youth ministry that I was serving at the time. So I just started asking the Lord, and and I came across this quote from a a pastor, a Korean pastor, and because he's Korean, he's probably really anointed, so I I really listen to Korean people. (laughs) I'm half Korean. I'm just gonna let you guys know. That's the joke if you don't know. Okay, so anyways, he said, when you prepare a sermon, do it with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. So I, I just said, okay, what happened? What's happening in Colorado Springs right now? So I opened up the paper and the first thing that I saw was there were these two moms. Now, if you ever visit Colorado Springs, has anybody ever been to Colorado Springs, first of all? Yeah, it's a beautiful place, and it's right nestled right up against the mountains, but when you look at the mountains to the west, you can look to the east, and there are no mountains, and it turns into the flatlands of Kansas. Very boring, right? Um, but before you get to Kansas, there's kind of these rolling hills. Well, when the sun is setting in Colorado Springs, uh, you're, six, you're, you're about 6,000 feet in altitude when you live there. You live at 6,000 to 7,000 feet. And there's not a lot of atmosphere, so the sun is terribly vicious. I mean, it's hard to see. Uh, when you're driving and the sun, you know when you're driving on the road and the sun's in your eyes? When I moved here, I was like, oh, this is not so bad at all compared to Colorado. You feel like your eyes are being burned out of your skull, and you can't see anything. And uh, these two mothers, walking strollers, were crossing one of the streets. And it wasn't a busy street, but it was at that time of day when the sun was setting. And a car crested this hill and couldn't see anything, and ended up hitting the mothers, killing them. The babies ended up just strolling over to the other side of the road. So in that one moment, I remember thinking to myself, the father, I was thinking about the father, what would it be like to be at work, and one day, get a call, and all of a sudden? this life that you were building with your wife, you are now doing it all alone. Would you feel dispossessed? Would you feel emptiness, rage? I can only imagine the wilderness that he was walking through. And here's the thing. We all... Have walked through seasons that can only be described as a wilderness season. In fact, I would bet there are some of you in this room right now thinking to yourself, I am living in the wilderness, even though I keep buying fake plants and trying to make everybody think I live. In abundance. But those fake plants aren't producing fruit that you can eat. Those fake plants aren't providing shade for you in the wilderness. They're only keeping people from knowing the true condition of your life. We come to church pretending that we're living in abundance When the moment we walk out those doors, we are, we find ourselves rooted in a desert where there is no water. How do we walk in these seasons? We live in a broken world. We live in a world that is falling apart at the seams. How do we Walk in the wilderness. What do we do? God says he's bringing his kingdom into the earth. He's promised life and life more abundant. How do I reconcile that promise with the lack of life that I'm experiencing right now? George MacDonald, a writer many years ago, writes this. He says, no words can express how much the world owes to sorrow. Most of the Psalms were born in the wilderness. If you were to open up your Bible to the Psalms now, you would find that most of the Psalms are written from a place of distress, saying, God, you said one thing, but I'm living another. Most of the epistles were written in a prison. The greatest thoughts of the greatest thinkers have all passed through the fire. The greatest poets have learned in suffering what they taught in song. The implication being what? That the wilderness is real and it's hard. It's like a fiery furnace. The primary text for today's message is this. Luke chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 um, and I'll just read the first part here. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Adorea, and trachonitis and Licinius, ruler of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in where? In the wilderness. I think this is interesting because when Luke, the author, is writing this, he writes a lot about the time and location. He's saying, hey, it was during this time. It was during the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius and Pontius Pilate and King Herod and his brother. Oh, and don't forget it was during the time of Annas, the high priest and Caiaphas, And most scholars agree that this is the typical way that people in ancient times would let you know this is when it happened. But I think it's interesting because he says it was during this time, and he mentions all these people of power. And he says the word of God came, but it did not come to the emperor. It didn't come to the high priests. It came to John, and John was in the wilderness. Why is that important? Because I think this verse also speaks not only to the time, but it speaks to the sources of power and influence that marked the setting in which God was going to reveal himself in Jesus. What am I saying? This, this, let me just say it clearly. When it references the governmental powers of that time, it's referencing those places of exalted human wisdom and strength. The Roman Empire was built on power. And when it references the office of the high priest, it's pointing towards the religiously powerful. But God's word of salvation didn't come to the high places of human or religious power and wisdom. It came to the place of weakness. It came in the place of difficulty. It was in the wilderness. When Israel was desperately waiting for the arrival of the king that would overthrow Roman oppression, the word of God didn't show up where you thought it should show up, where you expected it. To show up. If the King of Kings was going to show up, you'd think he'd show up in the Emperor's halls and say, Hey, that's my seat you're sitting in. You'd think he'd reveal himself to the religiously powerful, but that's not who God revealed himself to. He revealed himself to John in the wilderness. John chapter 16 Jesus is speaking he says this he says in this world you will have trouble guys we are going to experience difficulties we're going to experience we're going to experience the wilderness but here's my word to you this morning here's the word of the lord for you this morning that it is precisely in the wilderness and the difficulty that god's word will come to you My father was in the military, I mentioned that, but when I was in the eighth grade, it was during the Clinton administration, they, they cut the military funding down severely, more, more than half, I believe it was at the time. Because of that, my father was forced into early retirement, one year before retiring. When that happens, you don't get your full benefits. So my dad got a pittance, pennies on the dollar. And where my family was supposed to have lifelong insurance, health insurance, because my father retired, we did not. And that launched a period of eight years where my father didn't have a job. And it was a season that can only really, it can only be described as wilderness. He was overqualified. At the time, it was difficult to get a job. And every time my father would apply for a job, and I'm talking bottom of the barrel, he was going for anything he could. Sorry, you're overqualified. My, I, so I was in the eighth grade when this took place. And, you know, it's, it's easy as a child to inflate memories and kind of shape them according to whatever I was kind of going through at the time. So I called my parents, actually. I called my parents. I said, hey, let's talk about this time period. Let's talk about this wilderness. What was it like? What was going on? Some of the things that stood out to me, my mom was sharing with me that at the time we had about a $5 weekly budget for food. Five dollars, guys. Granted, it was in the 90s, so not quite the same inflation as today. But that's not a lot of money anywhere or anytime. I was, uh, I remember in high school, I didn't even have money to eat. praise god for the church and for god's faithfulness his faithfulness like we would we would find gifts credit card companies would forgive debt right like my mom would call and they'd be like okay like, what but the strain on my parents marriage the strain on me i'm in high school i was at, i was in sports every season that there was a sport. In fact, I actually doubled up one year and did wrestling and diving. We started a dive team. Me and my friend were like, hey, let's start it. Let's just do it. It's weird. Diving. All those things take money. My best friend at the time, he would visit and he would... uh, He'd say, he'd see the way that we were living. And praise God, we had a house at a beautiful home that my parents had purchased before this whole situation happened. So we had already been in because there's no way we would have been able to live in a house otherwise. But he saw how we were living. and In high school, this young man left $500 on our table one night of his own money that he had been saving. And I'll never forget it. Talking with my mom, she said that she was, she was waiting on God. And, and I think that's important. I want you to hold on to this. In the wilderness, what do we do? What do we do when we're in the wilderness? And I asked my mom, and she said, I just waited. I waited on God. And, and here's the thing, guys, She's, this is what she said. and She would wait on God and she would receive strength. But it wasn't the strength like God gave her an answer and she found strength in it. It was in her need that she found strength. So in Psalm chapter 32, verse 7, it says, you're my hiding place. You'll protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. There there was an old song from Integrity back then that we would just, all we could do is we would just play this song. Oh, you are my hiding place. It didn't solve the issue of our lack. It didn't, my dad didn't all of a sudden get a job. It just was in our lack, we fed on God. And I know that sounds weird, but in Habakkuk, it says, though the fig tree fail to blossom, it's another song that we used to listen to. Though the fig tree failed to blossom, and no fruit beyond the vine. I'm sorry. And the fields yield no food. I will praise thee, Lord divine. It doesn't matter how dark it's gonna get, I'm gonna lift my voice in praise. The wilderness is hard, but my God is bigger. I may not be able to see outside this wilderness, but I'm telling you, God is bigger than this moment and this time. He's bigger than this problem. He's bigger. That's why the psalmist can say in chapter 34, verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't know about you, but it's when I'm hungry that food tastes good. When you're in the wilderness, taste and see that God is good. It's in the wilderness that the word of God came to John. It wasn't when John traveled into the halls of power. It wasn't when he was preaching a great sermon on Sunday morning it was when he was in the wilderness that the word of God came to him and here's the thing about the word of God that we have to remember John chapter 1 verse 1 let's throw this up here it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was with God in the beginning through him all things were made Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, come on, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome it. This is what we can say about the word of God. When God speaks his word, you cannot divorce it from his presence and his character, what do I mean? When God speaks His word, whatever He's speaking, that is a part of who He is, and he'll never go against it. So when God says, "I am a God of love," He will never go against His own character. And the second thing to realize this from this is, is, is very simply this one thing: that when the word of God is spoken, he's not sending a text to you. He's not shooting you an email from some distance far away up in heaven. When God speaks, he is whispering in your ear. God is near. If God is speaking, that means God, if I were in a room and the lights were completely off and my brother was in that room, I would never know it. I can't see him, but the moment he speaks, I realize someone is in this room with me. God speaks in the desert, and if he speaks in the desert, that means God is with you in the desert. I know that the desert makes you feel like you're isolated and alone, but hear me, church. Hear me. If you're in a good place right now, hear me for when the wilderness comes. And if you're in the wilderness right now, this is is the word of God for you. I'm near you. God is saying, I'm close. Never, never was I distant from you. When God shares his word, he's sharing himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who who are we talking about there? We're speaking of Jesus Christ, the person. When God shares his Word with you, he's not just sharing knowledge. He's not just sharing information. He's not sharing a honey-do list with you. He's sharing himself. So when the Word of God came to John in the wilderness, it revealed that God was near. No matter how bleak or empty empty the wilderness may seem, God is near. Look, and this is the thing. This is what I would say to you. When we are in the wilderness, what do we do? Look for God in the unexpected place of your wilderness. Make room to listen. Open your ears. When you're in the wilderness, that's the perfect time. Here's the temptation in the wilderness. To flee. We look to all those sources of power that we're used to to get us out of the hardship. We want to use our streaming services to escape the wilderness. We want to pull out our credit card to escape the place of wilderness. But I'm here to tell you all this worldly wisdom and worldly power will never Speak the word of life and the word of salvation to you. It is God's word, it is Himself. Let me be clear here. I, I, I want to be clear here, and I got to wrap this up. I got about five minutes. I'm not making a statement on whether or not it's right or wrong to look for a way out of the wilderness, it's natural. It's difficult, it's hard. We should be looking, okay? So here is what I'm saying, just to be clear, that it is in the darkest of places that God desires to shine his light. I don't know if it's, I don't know if the situation you're in, I don't know. I don't know if it's right for you to look for a way out or just to remain there. Really, that's that's up to God. You got to hear him out. But here's what I do know. I do know that it's in the darkest of places that God wants to shine his light. It's in the deafening silence of the wilderness that God wants to speak. It's in the dry and arid places that he longs for his waters to flow. And I, listen, and I, I may not know the timing by which he will cause his life abundance to spring up in you, but what I know is that the word of God comes in the wilderness. That's what I know. Eight years of wilderness for my family is a long time. We didn't know when it was going to end, but God showed up. And we came through to the other side. Because of the difficult nature of the wilderness, it's it's uncertainty, it's lack, it's danger, it's isolation. And go to the next slide. It is a place that's marked and characterized by anxiety and fear. Right? How can it not be? It's a place. That's, it's just the character of the wilderness is anxiety and fear when you are looking down the barrel of a bill. I mean. Oh, there's a sense of anxiety. How many of you are with me this morning? Am I just preaching alone? When there are bills to be paid, I I feel anxiety. In Exodus chapter 14, the Israelites have been taken out of Egypt, but they've made it to the Red Sea, and they're backed up against the Red Sea. And the Egyptian army shows up behind them, and they say this to Moses. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us, away, taken us away to die in the wilderness, they would have rather have stayed in bondage than face the wilderness and the dangers of the wilderness. What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt, out of slavery? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. Let us be slaves because it's easier. Because I understand it. Because I've, expect, I, I've lived here so long, I know what this is about. And I don't know what this wilderness thing is about, so just leave me alone. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Not once in their protest, after all the miracles that they had seen God do on their behalf to free them from bondage and slavery in Egypt. Not once in all of this. Do you see God's name in this at all? No. Because fear had overwhelmed the Israelites. It overwhelmed their faith. It overwhelmed their trust. Fear left untended erodes faith. And it blinds our eyes to the presence and it stops our ears from hearing God. There's so much more that I could say about this. That fear must have appropriate boundaries. Because here's the thing. Fear is natural to feel. And it can be a good thing. Living in Colorado, there are lots of mountains. When I walk up to the... I like climbing and rappelling and... Rides that throw me high in the air, I like that stuff. Some people hate it, I like it. But I'll tell you what, when I walk up to a cliff, there is fear in my gut, and that's healthy. That's a healthy fear. What's not healthy is if I allow that fear to paralyze me. We got a healthy fear is a signal that invites caution and reflection. But when we leave it untended, when we let it run rampant, It blinds us to God, just like the Israelites. And all we can say is Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. Slavery was easier than freedom. I'm gonna skip down to the end of the sermon here. And the primary text, verse three says this in Luke. So the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness, but it says, and verse three picks up it says, He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Skipping down, it says, Every valley shall be filled, every mountain, every hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. It's interesting. It was in the wilderness that God spoke his word and said, no more wilderness. And what did John do? Immediately, immediately, what did John do? It says he began, he went back and he started to preach to the people. What's the point? How are we gonna end this service this morning? The point is this, that John's season in the wilderness was just that. It was a season. And every season has a beginning, And an end. For for those of us who might find ourselves in the wilderness, know this because it's easy to forget that the wilderness is not an everlasting time. The wilderness is not infinite, it is finite. It will pass. God's word came to John in the wilderness. Signaling the end of the time of wilderness. And the first thing John does is he begins to go out and to preach. Pentecostal theologian Dr. Chris Green says this It says, The Christian life is a life of movements, a life that Jurgen Moltmann, who's another theologian, describes as breathing. We inhale in worship and then exhale in witness the very life of God. And I think this is precisely what we're supposed to do in the wilderness. We inhale God. It's in the wilderness that God shows up and he speaks his word. He reveals his presence. And we're inhaling God in new and dynamic ways. And now that I've received God in the wilderness, I can turn to others who are living their own wilderness with an answer. I can breathe out and exhale God's life to the lonely, to the least, and to the lost. We breathe in and then breathe out. Life is not one constant effort at breathing in. It's, it's like we're always coming to church. We want to just breathe in, and then we want to get up in the morning and read our Bible so that we can breathe in. But we're never breathing out. And you cannot live life merely by breathing in. You have to breathe in, and for every breath you breathe in, you breathe out. It's the same with God. In the desert, you're tempted to just breathe in. Breathe in. I'm in need, God. I'm just going to breathe in. But I'm telling you, turn to your neighbor and breathe out. Breathe God in. Breathe his divine life in. Turn to the least lost and lonely and breathe God out upon them. We see this rhythm in the commandments. It says this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, inhale. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, exhale. For any of you that have participated in sports for any amount of time, the practice and the rhythm of breathing is incredibly important. It really is, here, it really is the difference between finishing the race and quitting the race. Our ability to breathe. When I did cross country, it was all about breathing. That's all you thought about. Learn to breathe. Don't let it run away with you. You feel like all, you just feel like you need more air, but you still have to breathe in rhythm. You have to breathe out to breathe in. I want to end the service by saying this. How do we learn this? How do we learn to breathe in and breathe out? Remember what I said back? We wait on God. We wait on him. We wait on the Lord. Psalm 27 says, I remain confident of this. I will see goodness, the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You know why he says that? He says that because he's not. He feels like He's facing a land of death, the valley of the shadow of death. And yet the psalmist says, I'm confident. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then what does it say? Wait for the Lord. Be strong, take heart, and wait for the, wait on the Lord. Turn your eyes to him. Don't lose sight of him in the wilderness. Let me end the message with this quote by a gentleman named Henry Nowen, and it's lengthy, but I want you to just, listen, I want you to allow, as I read this, allow the words to wash over your spirit today. Wash over your heart and your mind. Waiting is not a very popular attitude. Waiting is not something that people think about with great sympathy. In fact, most people consider waiting a waste of time. For many people, waiting is an awful desert between where they are and where they want to go. And people do not like such a place. They want to get out of it by doing something. It impresses me, therefore, that all the figures who appear on the first page of Luke's gospel are waiting. Zachariah and Elizabeth are waiting. Mary is waiting. Simeon and Anna, who are there at the temple when Jesus is brought in, are waiting. Scripture specifically says they're waiting. But what is it? What is the nature of waiting? What is the practice of waiting? How are they waiting and how are we called to wait with them? Waiting is active. Most of us think of waiting as something very passive, but there's none of this passivity in scripture. Those who are waiting are waiting actively. They know what they're waiting for and that it's growing from the ground on which they're standing. That's the secret. Last couple last couple sentences. Follow me, guys. That's the secret. The secret of waiting is the faith that the seed has been planted, that something is happening where you are and that you want to be present to it. A waiting person is someone who is present to the moment, who believes that this moment is the moment. We think in the wilderness, that the moment is out there somewhere. But I'm telling you, the wilderness is the context. It's the place, it is the place for the moment. It was when people, God's people were enslaved to Rome that he shows up in the flesh. It was when you were in bondage to sin that he showed up in your life. And the wilderness is the place where God is going to show up to you. Wait on him. Breathe him in. And then turn to your neighbors and breathe God on their desert. Amen.